So as you make your way back to your seats and uh, get to your Bibles, if you would look to the book of Jonah, Lord willing, this is the first of four deposits in the book of Jonah, and you can find it if you have a red Bible from the back on page 774. It's one of those uh, minor prophets that are not so minor, but are kind of hard to find in the Bible. So page 774, and if those page numbers don't match your Bible, you can look in the contents page and find the page number, and no one will judge you, I promise. So if you found Jonah chapter 1, we're going to read the first 16 verses of that chapter, and again, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, an inspired word. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said one to another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that in our time together, looking at this passage of Scripture, you may open our hearts to your great mercy. You are so kind to pursue us in mercy. And perhaps today... There are some that are antagonistic to your relentless pursuit. And I pray that you might open all of our eyes 
to the mercy that you have for us in pursuing us so that we might know peace with you. And so now bless our time together, we pray, in the preaching and hearing of the word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Jonah is a lesson on the mercy of God. It begins in typical fashion uh, that a prophet would begin in verse 1 with the words, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, usually, when you read a prophet, after you read that introduction, we'll have a number of messages that the Lord gave the prophet. Jonah is unique in that regard because that is exactly what we don't have. What we have is a story of Jonah's commission to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it. So the book of Jonah, then, is teaching history. That is, it is a historical story that teaches theological truth. The book of Jonah teaches us something about God, namely about the mercy of God. The key text in the book of Jonah, not to spoil the ending, but we have to spoil it because it will make the journey better. And so the key text is in chapter 4, verse 2 which says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So that's the key text, and it's taken from Exodus 34, the text that we read in the call to worship. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third generation. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 is the lens through which we must learn to read the Old Testament. Our God is a merciful and kind God. Perhaps you read an Old Testament text and you think, gee, that's harsh. You've read it wrongly. Read the Old Testament looking for the mercy of God. God works in salvation and judgment to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Salvation is his primary work, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And judgment is his alien work, visiting iniquity simply to the third and fourth generation. Now, if we think it odd in verses 2 and 3 that when Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh, he rose and fled to Tarshish, when we learn the lesson for, or the reason for his flight, it is even more shocking. He told us in verse 2 of chapter 4, he fled because he knew the character of God. We travel through the entire book of Jonah through fleeing from God and being swallowed by a fish, preaching in Nineveh and the repentance of the Ninevites before we get to chapter 4, verse 2, where the writer of Jonah for the first time reveals for us the reason that Jonah fled. He fled because of the merciful character of God. Doesn't that sound odd? He would have rather died then seen the Ninevites saved. And save them is exactly what God did. What a surprise. Our God is a surprisingly merciful God. Jesus said in the text that David read earlier that the men of Nineveh would rise up in judgment against his generation in Israel because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and yet one greater than Jonah, the Son of God himself, was preaching to them. 
Now, the question comes to mind, if you're inquisitive, how did Jonah become so antagonistic to the Assyrians that he would flee? I mean, he's a prophet, uh, by the way, that he would flee from God's commission to go to Nineveh. Well, this is not the first time we meet Jonah in the biblical text. He had had an illustrious prophetic career, and uh, in fact, he uh, was a prophet of the northern kingdom. When Jeroboam II came to the throne in Jonah's time, Israel had been suffering under a constant attack from Syria and from Assyria for 60 years. God was using those two nations to discipline his people because they did what was evil in his sight. Every king of the northern kingdom did exactly what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and Jeroboam too was no exception to that rule. God had disciplined them to the point that they were teetering on, uh, they were teetering on collapse out of the sheer mercy of God, he changed their fortunes. And now we can pick up on this in 2 Kings 14, if you want to look, and if not, I'll just read it for you, when we have this appearance of Jonah. Jonah was the prophet who appeared in the time of Jeroboam II, and he prophesied of the coming prosperity of Israel uh, despite their wickedness and rebellion against God. And so the scripture tells us, for example, in 2 Kings 14 about Jeroboam 2, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is the first king of the northern kingdom, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Out of the sheer mercy and grace of God, he preserved his undeserving people. At that time, Assyria immediately fell into decline, and Nineveh was the principal city of Assyria. Jonah was not in the Assyrian fan club. He was angry because of the way his people had suffered at their hands, and now they were on the ropes, and Jonah's people were prospering at the word that Jonah spoke to them, and God of all things said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why would Jonah oppose that? I would think that's fish bait for a prophet. Call out against them, I will be happy to. Jonah didn't want to go because he understood the character of God. He was a good reader of his Old Testament. He knew about Exodus 34, and he knew that God is a merciful God, full of steadfast love and kindness, and that he forgives sin and iniquity and transgression. And he thought, if I go there and preach to them, I know exactly what's going to happen. God has a purpose of grace for them, and the Ninevites are going to repent, and then God's going to spare them, and I cannot tolerate that situation. Now, with that background in mind, I don't want us to look down on Jonah. Jesus had a very positive assessment of Jonah. In fact, the experience of Jonah has the privilege of being a sign of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Jonah was a good prophet who struggled with the character of God. We struggle with God's mercy too. 
Jonah helps us grapple with God's character, the universal reach of divine mercy, his concern for all people, perhaps people for whom we have no concern, and he reminds us of our own need for mercy. When you read the book of Jonah, you need to identify with the prophet Jonah because we, like Jonah, stand in need of the mercy of God. Now, perhaps in some way, in some fashion, you are struggling with the mercy of God in your own life or in the lives of others. It could be right now that you are like Jonah, running from mercy. So as we look at this text together, the application is going to be housed within the points as well because I think these things are true of all of us. And I want you to notice first the foolishness of running from God's presence. The foolishness of running from God's presence. We can see that in verses 1 through 3. Jonah did exactly the opposite of what God had commanded him. The Lord told him in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Verse 3, we have the contrastive there. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That is in the exact opposite direction that God told him to go. You could not get more diametrically opposite than Jonah got. Now, verse 3 is a chiasm that Aaron has taught us to love so much. It is a chiasm that is the anatomy of disobedience. At the beginning and end of verse 3, you see this idea of running from the presence of God. Jonah was running from the presence of God. Of the Lord. And as you work your way in from the extremes, the next level you get to is we're told that this journey that Jonah was making was a downward journey. He went down to Joppa and then he went down into the ship. And now, as we work our way a little bit further in, we find that when he got to Joppa, he found a ship. And then he paid his fare. When we come to the very middle for the third time, we have the mention of Tarshish. Jonah was heading for Tarshish, probably somewhere in Spain. And it is the place where Jonah feels that he can escape the presence of God. To move away from God is always a downward journey. You can see Jonah go down, just like dropping in the water. Bloop, bloop, bloop. There he goes. That's Jonah in the book of Jonah. He went down to Joppa. So the, the writer is very entertaining, isn't he? he? We're meant to look at this and laugh because it's a bit funny. He went down to Joppa, verse 3, down into the ship, that's not low enough. He went down into the inner part of the ship. That's not low enough. He lay down, and before long, he'll find himself, says chapter 2, verse 6, he'll find himself down at the bottom of the sea. And when he got down as far as he could go to the bottom, God was still there. The presence of God from which Jonah flees is that sacred place before the face of God. Every time he would gather with the people of God in the house of God, he would hear the call of God, Arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah wanted the voice to stop. He wanted the call to go away. Jonah's life was a contradiction. 
when he got the good word from the Lord for the northern kingdom of Israel that they were going to have years of prosperity under Jeroboam II, he was thrilled to give that message even though he knew in his own heart that Israel did not deserve it. They had been in idolatry from their inception. They continued in idolatry and they were carried off captivity into captivity because they were idolatrous. Jonah knew they did not deserve it. They were not less guilty or more deserving than the Assyrians. Those categories are meaningless when you're talking about relating to God. Who is, who is more deserving? Who is less guilty? Jonah was so happy to see his wicked and rebellious people prosper, but he could not stomach that God might be merciful to Nineveh. We can be under the impression that what determines whether we do what God wants us to do is whether or not we like it or agree with it. Sometimes God gives us things to do that we absolutely love. Sometimes he bids us do things we would just simply rather not do. God is into making his character known and developing ours. At the end of the road, you don't want to travel. You may find the greatest treasure of your life. Stop running from the mercy of God. He has not put you in a place of contempt. Mercifully, this is a race you cannot win. Number two, God graciously pursues those who flee from mercy. We can see that, I think, in verses 4 through 6. In these verses, there are a lot of things that get hurled. That's the key word of this text, hurling. If this was an Olympic sport, it would be called hurling. A lot of things get hurled, starting with the Lord in verse 4, hum hurling a great wind upon the sea. And then in verse 5, the sailors hurl the cargo of the ship, and at last, most famously, they hurl Jonah. Amidst all of the hurling in this text, God is pursuing Jonah and even intends to extend his mercy in surprising places in the process of that pursuit of his errant prophet. The storm God hurled on the sea, the sailors know, is no ordinary storm. You can see the situation in their dire reaction. They are afraid, and rightfully so. And so they, the text tells us they were afraid, and they cried out each to his God in verse 9. And then they hurled their cargo into the sea. They were a polytheistic people. They didn't know which god might have been offended nor which sailor may have offended said god. And so they went through their Rolodex of gods. Let's cry out to all the gods and perhaps if we hit on the right one then he will save us. And by the way, while we're waiting on that let's lighten the ship and throw the cargo overboard. If one doesn't work, perhaps the other will. You could not find a picture of less concern than what you see in verse 5. Because we have the sailors then, in light of God hurling the storm, were afraid, but there's the prophet of God. He had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down, and he was fast asleep. Now, I don't know how you sleep fast, but however you do it, that's what he was doing. He couldn't wake up. 
I don't think I'm pressing the text too far when I say that the desperation of the sailors is the common characteristic of the world without God. Can we not just look out and see, brothers and sisters, that we live in desperate times? Everybody wants to be saved. The world is filled with people who are perishing and crying out, yet at the same time are antagonistic to the gospel. They want to be saved, but they don't want the medicine. We want to be saved, but we don't want to leave our sin. Our culture's desperate, and the desperation manifests itself in a multiplicities of way. To my chagrin, I live in the generation that invented the selfie. Since the advent of social media, teen depression is up 78%. You want to know why everybody's so depressed? The people who develop that stuff will not even let their own children use it. There are people out there that make videos of themselves talking, even having mental breakdowns, and they post them on YouTube for public consumption. That is not an example of a healthy society, by the way. Our narcissism has reached the point that we think we can choose our sex and we go so far as to mutilate confused children. A mom was in the waiting room with her young son and the little boy looked up at his mom, just three or four years old, and he said, Mom, am I a boy? And she said, honey, you just be you. My head exploded. There's still fragments of it on the wall. We confuse our kids in our ignorance and we mutilate them in our arrogance. When a woman seeks to abort her child, she's desperate. Our culture is desperate, and our culture is calling on gods that cannot save, they cannot even satisfy one single longing of the human heart. The captain's question to Jonah is sobering. In verse 6, he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Yes, what do you mean? You sleeper, the prophet of God is asleep, acting as though he does not have the answer while the world around him is perishing. Brothers and sisters, we have good news. We have something to say to a world that is desperate. I find it interesting that the further words of the captain to Jonah echo the words that God had earlier spoke, spoken to Jonah. For example, God said to Jonah in verse 2, Arise and call out. The captain tells Jonah in verse 6, Arise and call out to your God. I think Jonah was sitting there. I think I've heard that before somewhere. Do you think Jonah is feeling pursued? God graciously pursues those who flee from his mercy. The captain's further words are clarifying because he tells us in the last part of verse 6, perhaps the God, that's interesting the way that's translated in the text, perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. He did not say the God. But he said the God, and the reason it's translated the God is because the verb following it is will give, and it's in the singular. So therefore, this reference to God must also be in the singular to have subject-verb agreement. And so the God will give. What we have here is an Exodus-type showdown between the gods. The captain is in effect saying the real God who answers is going to be the God. 
This is the exact same confession in chapter 3, verse 9, that the king of Sodom makes. And so in the text, we're meant to see that there is a sincere looking for the God who is the God. God is showing himself in this story to be who he is. Do you think Jonah is feeling pursued? How is it that a polytheistic captain can come to the prophet and say, the God will answer? Jonah knows the truth. A pagan tells him, get up and pray. Jonah does not pray. Oh, he's going to pray, just not now. We haven't gotten to the end of Jonah at this point. But we're going to get to the end of him. He gives no hint at this point in the story that he knows and represents God. But he has to feel by now that he's being pursued by the mercy of God. Now, he may not call it mercy. But if God is pursuing you, Dear friend, if God is pursuing you this morning, it is mercy. Oh, it is great and wonderful and glorious mercy. So do you see God's pursuit of Jonah? Number three, God graciously uncovers our rebellion. In verses 7 through 10, we can see that God graciously uncovers our rebellion. Now perhaps Jonah really thought that if he left the place of God's call, that sacred place, and buried himself deep in this world without God, that he could escape the voice of God. But when you have a God who happens to also be everywhere else all at the same time, you really have a hard time getting away from this God. So when Jonah is is on deck of the ship. Uh, The sailors decide they'll cast lots in verse 7 to find out why this evil, or on whose account this evil, has come upon them. Jonah already knew before they cast the lots where the lot was going to fall. Men cast lots. God makes the decision. Jonah, the sailors realize, is the key to knowing why this evil had come upon them. And so in verse 8, I mean, there's a storm going on, right? And it's really serious. And so we have to get the sense of urgency here. In verse 8, they pepper him with questions. And these questions are diagnostic questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? What they're trying to determine is um, who's Jonah's God? He's apparently offended him. We have to determine who that God is that we may call on him. Many pagan cultures today, polytheistic cultures, still look at relationships and place of origin to determine the cause of catastrophe. When they heard Jonah's answer... They were all the more afraid. Jonah answered in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I would take a little exception with Jonah here, and I would say, you say you fear the Lord, but you don't act like you fear the Lord. In fact... These sailors, these pagans on this ship are having more respect for God than you as the prophet of God, Jonah, have for God at this moment. Now you can see the progression of fear in this text, and we're meant to see it. In verse 5, the sailors fear the storm, and now they fear even more because they understand that Jonah has offended the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Mercifully, we have a narrator's note in the last part of verse 10 
that tells us that in this confession that Jonah made, apparently he had explained to the sailors that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord uh, because the Lord had told him to go to Nineveh. And their exclamation says it all. What is this you have done? Any reasonable person knows that you cannot flee the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And besides that, if you're fleeing him on the sea, that is the wrong mode of transportation. He just said he's the God of the sea. Wherever you run, you run in to the God of heaven. God has graciously uncovered Jonah's sin. Brothers and sisters, when God uncovers your sin, it is a merciful thing. If you will just uncover your sin, God will cover it by the blood of Christ. But if you cover your sin and you belong to Christ, God will uncover it. His mercy will pursue you to absolutely no end. And our God will uncover your sin. Number four. God will accomplish his purpose in us and the world despite our rebellion. You can see that in verses 11 through 16. Jonah knows that his refusal to go to Nineveh will not stop God from being gracious to the Ninevites. He's just simply determined not to be the one who carries the message of grace to them. Death to him looks better. And so the question of the sailors, again, is telling in verse 11. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The situation is getting worse by the moment. The text tells us that the sea grew more and more tempestuous. In fact, that phrase is... is uh, said again in verse 13, so things are getting worse and worse, doing nothing's not an option, and Jonah says the solution is pick me up and cast me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me this tempest has come upon you. On the one hand, we look at, we look at that and we say, that is commendable, Jonah. You are willing to be cast overboard so that these sailors may live. It seems that the options here are everybody dies or Jonah dies. But by choosing the nuclear option, Jonah is still acting in his rebellion. God may save the Ninevites. He's just not going to do it through me. I can trump the storm. I'll go into the sea. You know, there's a third option here. Jonah could have repented. Why didn't he just call on God? And then the storm would have quieted down. Does Jonah really think, does he really think that if God wants him to go to Nineveh, being cast in the sea is going to get him off the hook? Does he think that it's that easy to escape the bidding of the God who made the earth and the sky and the sea? 
the sailors are like, no, the nuclear option is unacceptable. We're not going to do that. And so verse 13, they work all the harder. They row, they row. We got to get back to shore so that we can save this prophet. They are showing to Jonah the mercy of God, something Jonah is unwilling to show to them. They are what he should have been. They were afraid of offending Jonah's God further rather than offend the God of heaven. They would rather do their very best to get him back to shore. Jonah was, I don't care if I offend the God of heaven. I'm not going to Nineveh. Jonah had no thought that God's gracious purpose extended beyond the commonwealth of Israel, not only to the Ninevites, but extended even farther than the Ninevites, that it, it would extend to the ends of the very earth so that we come to this place today because we have encountered the God of Exodus 34 and the God of Jonah who is merciful and kind and steadfast in his faithfulness and love for us who forgives us our sin and our iniquity and our transgression. I think sometimes we dwell in orthodoxy so long that we lose sight of what's being said. It all just becomes, a, uh, you know, our motto. We recite the creed and we don't pay attention to the words. We just go through the motions and, and that's it. If Jonah had listened to his own confession... I fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He would have understand that he would have understood that the whole world belongs to God and he rules it and he is a God who is merciful and kind. He has a purpose of grace for this world that will make his name exceedingly great in the world. God chose Israel to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests among the nations for the purpose of making his character and his glory known. Now the sailors do exactly what Jonah had not done as of yet. They cry out to the Lord in verse 14. Oh, Lord. That is the covenant name of God. We're meant to see in these verses the richness of the covenant mercy of the living God. And here is that name, that holy name of God that he revealed to Moses and he revealed to his people. And now on this ship, in the sea, there are pagans saying, Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This is the confession of faith of the Israelite. Our God who dwells in the heaven does as it pleases him. Isn't that an amazing confession? Listen to their reasoning of faith. They're rowing hard to get back. God had closed off every avenue of escape for them except one. Throwing Jonah overboard. And it's with fear that they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. Now you have to ask some questions of the story. One is, why didn't Jonah just jump? Uh, 
And then two, did Jonah not know what the sailors knew? That the God who is the God of heaven does what pleases him? What you have is role reversal. You have a prophet acting like a pagan, and you have pagans acting like they are the people of Israel who've experienced the special revelation of God. And so the result of this, the text tells us in verse 16, is the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. you see the progression of their fear. They have an outright pagan fear in verse 5 of the gods. Then they come to see that Jonah has offended his God and they fear the fact that Jonah has offended his God who happens to be the God of the very water that their boat is on. And now they fear the Lord himself fear is a synonym in the text for faith and for worship that it produces and so here we see them rightly fearing the Lord and giving expression to that and offering a sacrifice and then making vows. That is committing their future to the God of heaven who is the God of the sea and the dry land. The interesting thing about this language is this language is loaded because sacrifices and vows in verse 16, it's rare to find it together in the Old Testament. And in fact, the two places that you find it together in the same verse. Now, they're close by in some verses, but I'm talking about in the same verse. And the two places you find it together is in Psalm 50, 14, where, where Israel is upbraided because they are approaching God inappropriately with their sacrifices and vows. And the place where it's used positively is in Isaiah 19 where the Gentile nations are offering sacrifices and vows to the God of heaven. They're acting like the people of God because God in his mercy has made them be so. What I want you to see is that we're meant to see, and it's beyond our ability to understand, but it's there. God has had a gracious purpose, and here Jonah, in his opposition to see God save people outside of Israel, in the middle of his very rebellion, as he's hoisted over the ship and falling into the sea, these sailors are worshiping the God that Jonah is running from. What a challenging text to the people of God. You know how we would approach that in our day if it happened? We would say something like, Well, I just don't know if that's real. I don't know about the authenticity of sailors worshiping on the ship. I don't think they got it just right. And brothers and sisters, what we're meant to see is that God will accomplish his purpose in you and in the world despite our rebellion. Now someone could be listening and say, well good, it doesn't matter what I do then. God's going to accomplish his purpose? Fine, I can go on to Nineveh. Well, I didn't or, uh, go on to Tarshish, away from the presence of God. It didn't work for Jonah. I don't think it's going to work for you. You see, that is to put yourself in the position of Jonah. It matters greatly what you do. God will accomplish his purpose in you 
And I want to say to you this morning, that is a great mercy. Even if you have to look like you've been swallowed by a fish when you get there, brothers and sisters, God is going to accomplish his purpose in you. And it is a merciful purpose. Now we need to learn from Jonah that it's foolish to run from the presence of God. God pursues those who flee from his mercy. And mercifully, he uncovers our rebellion to accomplish his purpose of grace. Now this morning, as we come to the close of the service, perhaps you have been fleeing from the mercy of God. And I want to encourage you, stop running and embrace God's mercy. If you haven't placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this prophet Jonah has the high honor of being a sign that pointed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for sins and he rose again the third day that those who repent of their sin and place their faith in him would know the mercy of God. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, to do so. We're going to come to the Lord's uh, Supper together this morning. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we want to ask you to abstain. And when we come by, you can just walk by and, and not take the supper. We don't want to push you away. We want to invite you in. And the way to come in is by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like we saw the Stacys do this morning, you confess your faith in Christ through baptism. And then you come to the table for ta table fellowship with the people of God. If you are a member of an evangelical church in good standing, we invite you to come to the table this morning. And the way we'll come to the table is, as we do every Sunday, if you're in the main part of the sanctuary here, you'll go to the outside of your rows and circle around back to the inside and then back in to your seats. The cups are stacked in the trays so that you grab one stack. It has two cups, one with bread and one with juice. And then there'll be a pastor over in the overflow area uh, who will have servings for you and you can go around and get a, sub, a serving of communion as well. And then when we all get back to our seats, we will eat and drink together as we give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And so as the band comes, I want to ask you to bow your heads. And uh, this can be a time of preparation for you to come to the table. Perhaps uh, you have sinned greatly. And you're thinking, I'm a believer, but I've sinned greatly. Should I come to the table? You should run to the table asking God for the forgiveness of sin and cleansing that he brings in your life and so would you today bow your head as the band comes and then we'll come to the table together